who's uh, been part of these series up till now? Follow this idea of these passion themes. <coughs> right, that's very good. Well, we'll start there then. So you, you four would just like to rest, and the rest of us will play catch-up. When I was a very new Christian, I, I don't know where I got the idea from, but I, I thought that Christians ought to love everybody in the world. Has anybody got... Yes? Ring a bell? You think you should? Yeah? Okay. So I thought, well, I was a new Christian. Lord, help me to love everybody in the world. Has anybody prayed that? And how did you get on? So I thought that was great. And there was no problem. We were just going along. And then, actually, in the church I was at, the vicar said, David, we need somebody to help the people who are leading the youth work. So I want to just salute Pauline and Chris. I got dropped in it, like uh, I think uh, you weren't. So I said, fine, I'll do that. And we'd like to join the team. Now, the team is led by a guy called John. Oh, I said, I know this John. He's a bit of a, you know, you can't, no, not, there's not a John here. Somebody looked a bit guilty. <coughs> He's a bit of a know-it-all. Do you know that kind of person? Do you know me like that? And they just, oh, sorry. No, don't look. It gives it away. Just say yes or no. <laughs> and, and so I thought to myself, have I really got to work with this chap? And he said, and he's the leader, so you're an assistant, so work with him and see what he can help you do. And I thought, this is just terrible. So anyway, we went along to the, a team meeting, and I said, here's a great idea. Why don't we... No, David, we don't do that here. Right. And this went on for months, and every idea I suggested was just knocked on the head. And really, if I was being candid, I just got a bit fed up. Would you? So I went back to the Lord and I said, Lord, what do I do with this guy, John? Do you think I should leave? And then there won't be any conflict and then he can get on with youth work and I can go and do something else. Well, as I, I didn't feel any word from saying that's a good idea. So that was a shame, really. So I said, well, Lord, how do I love somebody like that? How do I have passion for people when they're real people? They're not just, oh, Lord, we love the world. Or we love those who are... Uh, sick, or we love that this is a real person I had to work with, and he was just on a good day, he was just different from me, and on a bad day, he was obnoxious. Now, that was my experience. And I went to the Lord and I said, and I asked for a way out and didn't get it, so I had to work out, well, how, what do you do? Well, I found that came back to me when I was thinking about tonight's theme of a passion for people, because I think, in truth, none of us can really have a passion for people that lasts. You may go to a great Sunday evening service and there may be some brilliant music and you've sung your heart out and you go out meaning to, yeah, do you know? And on Monday lunchtime, somebody does something to you. They nick your parking space if you're a, you've got a car or they just sort of somehow make a mess that ripples down to you and you get really cross and you think, oh. And you find that actually what you thought you were going to do, what you said that night with all the prayer and all the singing... It isn't somehow working. So what do we mean by a passion for people? There's a pause there if you have a little think. You don't have to sing out, just have a think. You have to keep your eyes open when you're thinking. That's the only thing I would suggest. Okay. Well, this is what I thought you could do. If What does it really mean? How does it hang together? How does it work? It could be 
that there's somebody you respect. They could tell you what they think. It could be that um, you've read about something somewhere else and you think that's brilliant. It could be you've just heard something at school, you've heard something at work. And the, all these different ideas there. But do you know, after a bit, it, it gets really bewildering. You sit down at night and you've got 27 options. And what do you do then? And actually, here's the, here's the real killer one. And you begin to think you know. You think, actually, I think this is what it is. But actually, it's only you. And you may be right, you may be wrong. So how do we work it out? Well, my answer is this, that you look at Jesus. Where do we look for a reliable explanation? At Jesus. And I don't know where else to look. Because the church is made up for a right mixture of people, lovely Christians who on a bad day are not quite as lovely or are not quite as clear. Do you know? This guy, John, was a great Christian. Great evangelist. He'd go out on the streets and talk to kids wherever he met them, you know, hanging around the shops and all that stuff. He was a natural. But he was also a sort of a... Uh, he was John. Well, I think if we're going to look for Jesus, and we talk about a passion for people, where do we see it? We saw it in that reading just then, the feeding of the 5,000. If you'd like to take it up, Mark chapter 6, and if you look at it just here, verse 32, Jesus and the disciples are in the boat. They go to a solitary place. Mark chapter 6, verse 33. That's page 1009, 1009, verse 33. But many who saw them leaving, they knew where they were going. They ran on foot from all the towns and they got there ahead of them. You see, to go around the coast, you have to go out around the headland. You go along the coast and then you pull into the next bay. All you have to do is go over the top of the hill and you're down there. So by the time they'd gone out there, who knows whether there's a wind, they'd row around, they went all the way around. Then they came around the corner and there's this quiet little place where nobody ever goes. And there, as they came around the bay, they saw these people. So Jesus and the disciples in the boat, they'd gone all the way around there to get away from people and look at them. The place was just packed with people. Terrible. So, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began teaching them many things. That's the word there, compassion. Jesus had compassion on this crowd. So I thought maybe uh, we could learn from Jesus tonight. Well, what I might suggest is that Jesus shows us what compassion is. He gives us the meaning of it. Secondly, he gives us what I would call the dynamic. How does it work? It's all very well to have ideas, but how do you make it work? And then thirdly, how do you keep it up? So if we begin at the beginning, where do we look? Well, we look for Jesus. If we just see it. Yes, next one, Rob, please. How do we get to Jesus? Well, you can talk to people about their experience, but it's great to use the Gospels as your, your, as your, your measure, your standard. So we go and look at this, the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospels, and there we see how Jesus reveals God's compassion for those people. And the way he does it will correct what we thought, and it also shows us how to get this passion in our own lives. So let's look more closely at the next. Next, thank you, sir. Yeah. Jesus saw the crowd, and what did it say? He had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. But this picture shows what the disciples saw. What did the disciples see? 
people. Yeah. Stacks of people. Yeah. What were the disciples wanting to do in the boat with Jesus? Do you remember? Sorry? Get away. They were going to have a nice quiet time with Jesus. They were going to tell him all about the stuff they'd been up to. And now, this is what the disciples saw. They saw, basically, a crowd getting in their way, didn't they? And if you look, what's the first thing? You have to look at the Bible. Awfully sorry, you closed it. (laughs) You could open it again. Um, What's the very first thing the disciples say? You have to read on a bit. Start at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and they began teaching them. What was the first thing the disciples say? This is a very remote place. It's very late. So, Jesus, please, what? Send the people away. Now, what do you think about that? Eh? Is that compassion? No. But it, it, funnily enough, it's when compassion runs out. Because what had happened, we haven't got time to do it now, but if you read just before this, those disciples have been out preaching. And for the first time ever, they'd been out, and Jesus had given them the authority to make a difference. So when they went out preaching, two by two, they got to a place, and they start preaching in the marketplace, and a crowd would gather. Well, there wasn't much telly on those days, so, you know, what else? It was entertainment, wasn't it? So you went to hear the new, the travelling preacher. And he would say, the kingdom of God's coming. And they went, oh, yeah, yeah. The last guy said that. And when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to make a difference. Yeah, yeah, yawn at the back. Anybody going to drink? I've heard this one. All this kind of mutter, mutter, mutter. And then somebody says, if it's going to make a difference then, what about this person here at the back who can't walk very well because they've got a bad ankle or something? And so these, these disciples, green as grass, said, what did Jesus do at this point? Well, he would, he'd, he'd go and heal them. They said, right, okay, where is he? And they went to the back, these two, never done it before, and they put their hands on him and said, "Um, Jesus says, when the kingdom of God breaks in, you will be healed. You can be healed now, so get up and walk. And they stood back, and this person got up and walked. Could you imagine it? How mean. (whistles) And then, they said, this is not bad. So they said, this is great. Then they went to the next village, and the same thing happened. By now, they're, they're experienced evangelists. So they go out there and say, uh, somebody at the back, pray for him, they got well, pray for her, she got well, pray for him, he's, he's, he says, at last it's clear, I could never understand what all the gospel's about, thank you. Pray for somebody else, and nothing happened, they got stuck. So they said, we're awfully sorry, uh, we know a man who can, we'll go and see him, and we'll get back to you, is that all right? We'll come back this way, and, and sort it out for you. So they'd had a kind of compassion for people, the disciples, They'd really helped these people, and they, and they enjoyed helping them. So it's great to be a Christian, to see people being helped and you know, their lives improving. But by the time they'd done that, they were worn out, and they came back to Jesus, and actually they weren't compassionate anymore. They were just wanting time with Jesus. And so the first thing they said was, Jesus, please send these wretched people away. Don't you understand, Lord? Read my lips. We were hoping to talk to you, Lord. Mm. So that is not compassion, what they did. But Jesus saw them. And, and what, what I think is interesting here, if Jesus puts his compassion into our hearts, he changes the way we see. Do you notice? Jesus saw them, had compassion for them, and saw those, they're just like sheep, wandering around without a shepherd. Those poor things, we, I must do something for them. 
the disciples saw them and said, we're hungry, we're tired, it's time to have a chat. And oh dear, some more people have turned up. So your heart changes how you see. What you see is the same. Jesus saw the crowd that was there, exactly just as the disciples did. Well, what then is compassion? If we go on to the next slide. Um, for those of you who'd like to do some Greek tonight, here's your one word. All right? And can you read it? Yes? Well, I'll, I'll say it for you, just, so, just to give you a helping hand. The word is splag nits omai. Quite easy, isn't it? Splag nits omai. Do you want to try that? This, this heart's brilliant. And again over here, just have a rest. Splagnitzomai. Splagnitzomai. Now you see, you can go home and say you've learned something. Isn't that great? You can prove you went to church and listened. I've got a new word. What does it mean? It means passion. It's, it's a kind of deep, strong compassion. Splagnitzomai. And it is, there was a man called Wittgenstein, whom you, you might do in your A-levels or some of your uh, adult education things, he was a philosopher, and he said, if you want to know what a word really means, tell me how it's used, and then you can work out what it means. So if you look at when this word is used, you'll get a clue. Because it was used principally of Jesus himself, and then also of the three key, parable, <coughs> key parables we're going to mention in a minute. This word means a deep passion which stirs you from within and issues in a, a compassion for, to see life change for the people that, that have stirred that compassion. So it's something that's deep within. It really moves you. I suppose it's a bit like being an Arsenal supporter yesterday. Was there anybody here who... Yeah, yeah, you're looking well. It was the underdog that came back. And then, they, do you remember, they equalised and then, within a minute, had scored again. For those of you who weren't watching, it was... Even Janet and I, who are not fo football buffs, were actually shouting. No, we weren't. We were just sharing with the television set what ought to happen. <laughs> so passion that's deep and moving. That's what it is. Okay, let's look more closely. When, if we go to the next slide, uh, Rob, thank you. Jesus has compassion in the New Testament for somebody who had leprosy. Compassion for somebody who was blind. He had compassion here for the crowd. When he wanted to tell stories to help people get the message, he used that very strong word when the father had lost his son. Do you remember the, the prodigal son? The father cared so deeply for this son that that was the word Jesus chose to use. Similarly, the Samaritan. Do you remember the Samaritan on the Jericho Road? He saw this person who had been beaten up, lying on the ground. The Samaritan had compassion for him. He was deeply moved. And similarly, a master had compassion for his servant, with a debt. This was a servant who, who just couldn't pay his debt and the master has compassion on him and set him free. The trouble was he then went and charged and put somebody else in, into problems. So that's what compassion means. It's a deep concern to see something put right. It starts deep within and it overflows. It, it leads into the Christian understanding of love, agape, which is, which is, not, which is interesting. It's not about liking. I found that with, with working with John after a time, Jesus helped me to work with him, and we got on all right. I never, if I'm being honest, liked him. But we were brothers in Christ, and Jesus helped us to work together. 
And actually, from the purpose of those young people, it was great. We saw young people becoming Christians and starting out to make a real difference in their school and so on. And we were brothers. Now, I don't know about you. It's probably true that in some families, brothers and sisters, they're brothers and sisters. They're not really um, great close friends sometimes, are they? We, you, I mean. We don't have to like somebody to have compassion on them. We have to see them with the eyes that come from God's compassion being in us and flowing out into others. So there is what it means to have compassion. If we go then to the next slide. The dynamic. Actually, I've just thought, perhaps I ought to mention something before we're going on. I worked in the Diocese of Birmingham, just over the way from here. And we had a lot of vicars who were working in really tough areas. And so I said to the bishop, I think we ought to support these vicars. It's, hard. it's really tough. He said, well, David, he said, we've got a group for all those who work in the really tough inner city places. And I said, yeah. And we've got another group for work on some of these really tough outer estates. I don't even know some of these estates. They're just run down. They were built for 30 years ago. Nothing much has been done. They're large. There's no immediate centre. The shops are half closed. We've got, we've got a, a support group for inner city, a support group for those who work in the city. And I said, well, I think we should now have a support group for those who live in the leafy suburbs. And there was a long pause... And then somebody, not the bishop, said, why? Surely it's all right. The tough challenge is to live when you've, you've got little. You're living in the city or in an outer state. It's not tough in a nice leafy suburb, is it? And, I, and let me say, I agree with you. On the surface, it doesn't look tough. But if you look at people, as Jesus did, as sheep without a shepherd... People who live with lots of money and a couple of cars and all that stuff, they're equally lost as those who live in the inner city with hardly uh, two people to, run, to, to call their own. Because it's the way you see people. If you have compassion for them, you'll see even those people need the love of God. So, well, how does it work? Let's move on then to look at the dynamic. Oh, sorry, we, sorry, Rob, that was too fast. That's my fault. If we just go back one. This is the way Jesus explains it. If I can just give you a crib. Jesus grew up, and as he grew up, he studied the Bible and prayed a lot and listened, and his father spoke to him and helped him grow in understanding about what his ministry was going to be. It was very interesting. Even though Jesus was the Son of God, he didn't, as it were, cheat. He came to live as a fully human person. And to be fully human, he had to say, I'm going to learn the way human, ordinary people learn. So he studied the Bible, he talked to people, he prayed and he learned. And by the time of 12, he would go and debate with people in the temple and they were very impressed. And eventually, it came to the point where he realised that his father in heaven was asking him to do a particular kind of ministry. And in preparation for that, he went out into the, uh, <clears throat> the desert, he found, uh, sorry, uh, out to, uh, to meet uh, John the Baptist, where John the Baptist was baptising people. And John the Baptist, was a bit, he, he'd recognised this Jesus for something special. But anyway, he said, Jesus came and Jesus said, please baptise me because I'm about to start a great work for God. So John the Baptist baptised Jesus. 
And as he came out of the water, he was given two gifts. Do you know what they were? Two gifts. Think back. He was baptized in the River Jordan. He came up out of the water. Two gifts. First gift. Holy Spirit came, came down, yeah. But actually, that was the second gift. Ah, go on. He was told that he was, he was beloved by Father God. That's right. The first gift Jesus was given was his father speaking to him. He said, you are my lovely, lovely son. And I'm so pleased with you. I'm proud of you. That statement, only twice does God speak from heaven in that way. Do you remember? When was the second time? Transfiguration, Transfiguration yes. The first time, who is addressed by the voice from heaven? To whom does God speak at that moment when Jesus is just coming up out of the water? Jesus. At the Transfiguration, when Jesus appears to glow, and, and who, does, who does the voice from heaven speak to there? Yes, that's right. When Jesus was baptized, these were the special words to him alone. His father would say, I think you're fabulous, or words that effect. You're just great. You're my beloved, lovely son. And later on, when they does again, he's then speaking to the, the disciples and saying, now listen to him. So Jesus was given affirmation, God saying, I love you. And second, he was given the Holy Spirit for the ministry before him. And I think that that's the secret, really, of compassion. Jesus, you see, had experienced the love of God, so he was able to go on and share it with somebody else. It started with his father loving him to bits. And once Jesus had entered into that and experienced it, Jesus wanted it to cascade out and he would love other people like his father loved him. And I think that's the secret, really. God's compassion, which we're talking about, is a gift from God to us. It comes into us and then it overflows to others. So if you want compassion for people like John, as I did, that's how I found it. Not by looking at John or trying hard to grit my teeth and say, you're a, you're a wonderful man, <clears throat> or something like that. But saying, Lord, I cannot love this man. And Jesus just said, look at me. And in heaven I say, Lord, he said, I love you. What more do you need? And when Jesus says that to you, actually, and you just let that sink in, you think, actually, what more do I need? You don't. Passion for people comes because we have discovered we are already loved by Jesus. And that's what Jesus found in his own ministry. And that why, if you look at that last verse there, 1 John, which was read to us, it was summed up. We love him because he first loved us. Isn't that great? And actually, sometimes I think it even works at a simpler level. That analogy I think sometimes, when, when, if you talk to people who've got married, and you, and you need to talk to them in the first year or two of marriage, while they can still remember why they did get married, <laughs> and they will say, 
how did you, did you fall in love? And there's usually an embarrassment on the, first, on the part of one person. One person fell in love with the other before the other fell in love with them. Do you know? You know, yeah. That, well, okay. And it's very interesting because for some people, it is realizing that the other person loves them that releases them to love them back. Now, you can ask your mum and dad that if you like. Mum, do you remember? No. <laughs> Surely, no. Must be joking. And so it goes on. <laughs> love is released when we discovered we are already loved and we experience that love. And so 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. Well, okay. It is the case, though, that sometimes people don't really understand that. So if we go to the next picture. There was this vicar. I'm sorry about the vicar stories. Uh, there are some others as well. And this vicar, he was on duty at Coventry Cathedral. Now, you may know Coventry Cathedral. It was damaged in the war beyond repair, and so they built a new one alongside the old one. And probably some of you have been there. And it was opened in 1962, and they commissioned somebody called Graham Sutherland to create a tapestry they were going to hang at the front of the church. So there was no window like this. At the front end of the cathedral, it was a blank wall. So they decided they'd have a tapestry of Christ in glory. It's 75 feet tall. It's 38 feet wide. That's wider than this. Well, it's just about, no, it's probably a bit wider than this aisle. It weighs a ton. It took 10 weavers two years to make it. It is just huge. How many people have seen it? Yeah, okay. Well, this vicar was talking about how he was on duty as a chaplain. Uh, well, he had the story anyway. He met this young lad who came up to him. And this lad said, I don't think God loves me. And I'm fed up about it. And people keep saying he loves me, but I don't believe a word of it. And, the man sa- and he said to this young lad, he said, okay. He said, I really, really wish it were true, but it isn't. And you Christians should stop talking as if it's true because you're misleading people. It is not true. He said, well, we know that God loves us because we've seen that he came in Jesus and went to the cross for us and died and then rose again and wanted to give us a new life. Yeah, 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 he goes, blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Yes, said the man. He said, but I know it's not true. I can tell you that. So he said, really? So if Jesus were here, what would you say to him? I would say to him, you've, you've let me down. I thought you loved me and you didn't. So he said, okay, this is Coventry Cathedral. Go into the cathedral. Go down in front of that big th- uh, tapestry there. Stand there. And don't, uh, when, when it's quiet and nobody's about, just tell Jesus that. Just be straight with him. So the lad said, right. And he marched off down, down the centre of the cathedral, right to just to the front here. And when there was nobody about, he started to tell Jesus what he thought of him. And he got so far, and then he couldn't. And he looked up at the tapestry. And he looked at And somehow, that tapestry was used by Jesus to say, I'm here for you now. And he started to weep, which is a bit embarrassing if you're a lad. Standing there, and he looked, and he couldn't believe it. So eventually, he, he collected himself together, and he went on, on the way out. He said, do you know, I think it is true. And the guy said, yeah. 
Well, he told him this story, and, and this story really was, I think, really moving because the guy who eventually told others about it, that vicar fellow, was that lad. He had gone in there doubting, wanting it to be true, and really angry that it wasn't. And somehow Jesus had used it. So it, we need to look at Jesus afresh. And if some of you have got to the stage where maybe your Christian life's gone wrong or it's, it's a disappointment to you, especially for those who've been Christians for longer, I think, I think it's really great fun at the beginning, isn't it? Don't you think? You lose your car key, well, you know, your bike keys. And you say, Lord Jesus, I'm really sorry where the keys. Jesus says they're over there. Oh, thank you, Lord. And you crack on. It's wonderful. When you're about 50 or so, you say, Lord Jesus, I lost the keys. And Jesus says, have you again? <laughs> Actually, you can get to the stage in your life that it's all routine. Church is, we've done it like this. Now, I know you can't say this at APC. I haven't seen two Sundays the same yet. But I know, haven't been here very long, really. Some have been here for 30, 40, 50 years. Whichever way around it is, you can get into a sort of rut with your Christian life. You can settle down. You can just think it's a bit of routine. You fit in here and there. And actually, it doesn't change the world and it doesn't excite you very much very much more. And what I'd like to say to you is this. If that happens to you, if the fire has gone out of your faith, I suggest it's because somehow you've forgotten how much Jesus loves you. And if you want to find a way back, ask yourself this. What will help me see afresh Jesus and what he did for me? It might be reading a gospel in one go. It might be going on a retreat. It might be going for a walk on the beach. I don't know. But if the Lord is given space again to refresh your vision of him, I think that's the beginning of getting that compassion we're talking about for people. It doesn't come from effort or hard work or clenched teeth. It comes from opening ourselves to Jesus. So, that's the dynamic. The love is given to us first and we pass it on. But how do you keep it up? And that's the second bit. You keep it up on the next slide because the Holy Spirit did that for Jesus. Jesus' ministry, he was anointed by the Spirit and that enabled him to keep going. And I'm very glad that Gary's here because I, th I think we've mentioned this before. I think the Holy Spirit is a bit like the wind for dinghy sailors. Now, my brother dinghy sails, and I've sailed with him in a very tentative way, but I he, he, did, he only let me hel helm, isn't it, the rudder? He only let me helm it for a little while, and as soon as the wind picked up, he said, David, I'll take it back. Shame about it. But, he, but when you, you get going, you can sail along and then there's a bit when the bow wave, that you're, that's the wave you create at the front of the boat, gets so big that you're pushing through it and you push up onto it. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And the boat lifts out the water. And you're now, there's far less of the boat in touch with the water. And that means there's less friction and that's less, less resistance. And so the boat then picks up further speed and it then it planes along at the top of the surface, but not in the water, just on it. It goes even faster. And the only difference that's got that boat from, from sailing along to planing along is just opening itself to the wind and getting the speed and the angle right, and you're away. Is that fair? Fairly. You need plenty of wind. Okay. When you've got plenty of wind. You see, there's a, it's like a two-stage process. A lot of Christians think we have got to put all the effort in, and we do, and then we get tired. We need to learn how to allow the Holy Spirit to refresh that newness of his life in us so that we don't get tired. And I think planing, is, is for me, is the picture.
So that's what Jesus showed us. That's how we keep it going. Well, we've just about come to the end, really. I'd like to just offer two thoughts, really, and a story. Here are the thoughts for the last but one. This is what I think it could mean for us. If we go to the next slide, Rob. Thank you. Our responsibility is to be like Jesus, open to the Father. If we put the Father first, then Jesus' love comes in and fills us, and we walk daily with the Holy Spirit. And if we're quick to respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do, then that's how compassion comes. Well, now, and the very last slide, if I could tell you a story from Africa, which is I went out as a mission partner to Uganda, now, Uganda had a great revival in the 1930s. Has anybody heard of it? The East African Revival they talked about. Yeah? Not yet. Okay. Well, what happened was the missionaries had been so preaching the gospel. Some people had become Christians. And these African Christians, because they were European missionaries, because it's quite a young church out there, these African missionaries said, listen, you're not doing it properly. Let's do it properly. So they went out praying a lot and preaching a lot. And suddenly there was a great revival and it was led by these new African Christians. And some of the missionaries would say, no, no, you don't do it like that. We're Church of England. Oh, pardon, they say? <laughs> Big deal. And in this revival, people were finding Christ all over the place. And they were, oh, it was amazing. So, out of that came a man called Festo Kivenjuri. And that's his picture up there. And he's a bishop. And I'm sorry about that, but it doesn't matter because he didn't think it mattered either. <laughs> and he went to preach at a, a university in uh, Kampala, at Makerere. And he wanted a team of people to help him. So I was one of his team, which is great. Uh, and he said, we're going to put you into different halls of residences where the students live. David, he said, I think we're going to put you in the women's hall. And I said, pardon? Yes, he said, I think you'll be just right for the... Well, I'd never quite understood that, but anyway. <laughs> so we did... And then we'd have these big meetings in the, the great big union, uh, the biggest hall on campus in McCarrery. And Festo would preach, and it was amazing. The place, if it was, it used to be about three times the size of this. And it's completely packed, and the doors are open, and you can see people going out into the night that way. The windows are open, there are people there looking in through the windows there and there. It was just packed. And he'd be up somewhere here preaching. And about two-thirds way through his sermon, people started to get out of their seats and come start walking forward. And so he stopped his sermon. He got down and he said, what do you want? He said, we want to become Christians. Not yet, he said. I haven't finished. Go and sit down. <laughs> so back he went. So he then preached a bit more. He said, right. And then they do the same. And he said, will you just kindly wait? <laughs> he was a tremendous man of God. Wonderful man. Now, Uganda was the place where the president, Idi Amin, you've probably heard the name somewhere in history, had actually had the archbishop murdered and taken his body out and driven the car over it to make it look as if it was an accident. But when they did, and then hidden the body so nobody could check the fact that there were gunshot wounds in it, in his body. So Idi Amin was hated by many. He'd, he was ruining the country and he'd killed this lovely man of God, the archbishop, Janani Luwum. And Festo said, that man, Idi Amin, is loved by God. And people said, you can't say that. Look at the terrible things he's done. No, he said, God loves him. And he wrote a book called I Love Idi Amin. And what was happening was that even in that very, very difficult circumstance, because Festo had opened himself to Christ, Christ's love had filled him and overflowed. 
And in conversation, he said, do you know what the secret is to do that? He said, think of this picture. Here's a heart, and he used to draw a heart like that. Yeah? Can you see it? Just there. Yes? Yes? You can see it. Shall I do it again? Are you right? Right. And in the heart, he'd draw a chair like that. Great, isn't it? There's, he says, the heart. And there's the chair, he said. Now, he said, that's you. In your heart, there is a chair, which is a throne. And whoever sits on that throne rules your life. And if you follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that Jesus is on the throne yet. If you say you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that Jesus is on the throne. There are lots of people who join Christian groups, but they never quite get as far as realising that if you want to experience freedom in Christ, you have got to get off that throne and you've got to invite Jesus to come and sit on the throne and say, Lord, I am completely yours. I'm at your disposal. There are so many people who'd like to be a Christian, 40%. Because the other 60% is really interesting. I love my games, my sport, my career, whatever it is. My money, my house, my marriage, my family, all the other things. Festo says... If you have on the throne the Lord Jesus, all those other things will drop into place and you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to many. And it's interesting that these new, inverted commas, Christians were, were sharing that with the missionaries and they brought the message back to Britain. And there are people here who are so grateful for that. So if you want to know the compassion for others, Festo's message is to say, ask yourself, who's on the, heart, or who's on the throne in your heart? And if it's not Jesus, can I say, please may it become so. It may be hard, and you may need help to get there. But when you get there, I tell you, it's fabulous. It's like the difference between, well, rowing and letting the wind take you. Really, to be close to Jesus and to be open to the Spirit and led by the Spirit, oh, it doesn't tire you out. But a lot of the other stuff does, halfway, halfway houses. It says in James, doesn't it, don't have a foot in one cup in the other because you won't do anything. So can I just say, I'm so grateful for, the, for the, the message that Festo gave, that simple truth. And may I offer it to you and pray it's a blessing. Okay, we're done. Thank you very much. Now the quiz. What, what was that word? <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we are not that brilliant at being Christians yet. But you love us more than we can ask, imagine, or even describe. And Jesus, thank you that you love us as we are, not because we're good or perfect or even trying to be perfect, just because we're here and we've asked you to help us and lead us. And Lord, we pray that you will fill us anew. Your Holy Spirit will breathe your life of love and compassion into us. And may we then be like fountains, cascading your love out amongst the people we know. Thank you, Lord, that you wish to do that. And we ask now you'll help us to move more and more into that experience. For your name's sake. Amen. <laughs>